We missed recording this morning's uh, sermon, this morning's talk, on Ephesians 6, sentences 5 to 9. So I thought, though it won't be uh, the same length or the same detailed or the same level of application as the live talk itself, I thought it was worth for those who follow on the podcast me just filling in uh, for a few minutes what we looked at, uh, not least because it's around that really crucial and important aspect of our lives, our, our workplace, our, pay, our paid employment, our arena in which we contribute and uh, invest and are productive. In fact, if you think for a moment of a couple of questions and the answers that you'd give to those questions, uh, probably our workplace, whatever that might mean for each one of us, uh, forms highly on the list of answers we give. And the questions would be, where do we spend the majority of our time? Or where do we spend a significant portion of our energy? Or where is your place of contribution? When you think of time, energy, contribution, of course there'll be a number of other arenas, family, leisure time, church life. But one of them will be paid employment if we have the privilege of working in that sense. In fact, uh, stats in the UK recently released said that if you are in full-time employment, that you spend 43.6 hours a week on average in the workplace. That tots up to an extraordinary 3,000 hours or three months of unbroken 24-hour days in the workplace. Uh, amazingly, 4% of people in full-time employment spend an average of over 60 hours a week, an average of over 60 hours a week in the workplace, whatever that might look like, whatever that employment might be. What's important to note here is though we live in a culture, a time in history where, where money and value are very closely interlinked, i.e. the more someone is paid, the more valuable they are, and, and if someone's not paid for the role they perform, they're deemed less valuable. It's very important to recognise that this is not about money, but this is in fact about the, the, the way we have been made to be productive, to contribute, to be involved in some particular way. And so whether you find yourself in paid employment, whether you're in that amazingly demanding and important role of being a full-time parent, which of course doesn't come with monetary remuneration attached to it, whether you feel underemployed, underpaid, underappreciated, whether you're retired and slightly dissatisfied with that experience, whether you've had the horrid uh, experience, reality of being made redundant, which is a, a terrible word, and the Bible would have no space for that kind of word about a human being. No one is redundant in that sense. Whether you've been fired, disappointed, demoted, whether you feel trapped, or that your career hasn't performed as you had hoped. Whatever your feelings are around it, they all point to a reality, don't they? That our workplace, having the opportunity to contribute, is far more important than simply earning money or making money. Because obviously many of us, if we won the lottery tomorrow, would still want in some way, shape or form to work. We might change the exact parameters, we might do something different to what we do now, but we certainly wouldn't choose to laze at home and do nothing constructive with our lives. <coughs> the reason, excuse me, the reason for that reality is because it's in the very makeup of a human being to be a working creature. The reason being is that we're made in the image of God, and God is a working God. In fact, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Genesis meaning the beginnings or the root, the initiation, of all things. We see how God himself is a working God and how we human beings are made in his image. We th see it in three ways, in fact. The first is we see that God is creative. 
Genesis 1, repeatedly we're told that God makes things. He's productive, he contributes, he progresses things. And actually God, particularly, is the great mover of things forward. He starts with nothing and makes a simple something. He goes from a simple something and makes more complicated and complete things. And we are made in his image. So Adam is called in Genesis chapter 2 to cultivate and care for the world, to be a co-creator alongside God. And whatever your skill set, whatever your ability, whatever your passion might be, it'll have a creative edge. It's an opportunity for you to be productive, a contributor, and progress things forward as God does. Whether it's you work on a building site and you take some simple bricks and mortar and from them make them much more complicated finished building whether you work behind a computer screen and take simple numbers or simple programming and make it more complex and more complete, whether you take an inert metal object with wheels and an engine and through it produce something that is able to transport objects or people or equipment from one place to another, whether you work in the home as a full-time parent and therefore work from a small baby, a, a simple a human being and over time progress it and move it forward and co-create with God until ultimately you produce a mature adult. We're made to be creative as God is creative, a contributor, productive. Secondly, and we see all of these three in our workplace or whatever arena we think of as our place of contribution. Secondly, God does it all in community. He's creative in community, in relationship, in harmony, in partnership with himself. We see that most clearly in Genesis 1.27, when God, in creating people, we read, says, let us make humanity in our image. Notice the plural language there, Father, Son and Spirit, one God, but three persons communicating, talking together, co-creators together, working together in community and relationship. And therefore we are made for relationship, we are made for community. God doesn't create one person, he creates humanity, a huge diversity, unified though in the fact that we are all human beings. And we see that reflected in what we are called to be. In the middle of Genesis 2, when there's only one human being in the world, God says, Genesis 2.18, this is not good. This is not how I designed it. This is not how it's meant to be. We're not meant to work or live in isolation. We're meant to work and live in relationship, in community. And so that's the second aspect of our workplace, our pay employment or whatever arena we're thinking of. It's a place for productivity and creativeness, but it's a place for community and relationship. And then thirdly, we see the final characteristic of God is what you might call care. A loving responsibility, loving authority over his world. And again, made in his image, we're called to be those who are lovingly responsible for those in our care. In Genesis chapter 2, God parades the animals before Adam. And Adam names each one of the animals. It's a sign of loving responsibility. It's exactly the same in our day and age, isn't it? Who names children? Not the state, not the education system, but parents. Because parents have the loving responsibility, the loving authority, the care over their children. And so if you imagine these three uh, aspects of God, the creativeness of God, the community of God, the care of God, we made in his image are called to exhibit and experience those same things, including within whatever our workplace might be. If you imagine them as circles, well, imagine the overlap as you bring them together. Well, that's the sweet spot, isn't it? A, a work experience where our 
creativity and productivity is highly functioning, where the relationships we have with those we work with are fantastic and fabulous, and where the care that we receive or the care that we give within that workplace as line managers or supervisors or CEOs is wonderful, a loving responsibility. That's the sweet spot, isn't it? And yet all of us know, don't we, that our workplaces, our present ones, our past ones, uh, ones that loved ones are in, are not in that sweet spot. Perhaps you can imagine a situation where, yes, the relationships are good, so the community uh, box is ticked and, and you come under good management and so the care box is ticked, but it's so pointless an activity. You feel like your contribution doesn't matter at all. You are such a small cog in a grand machine that you wouldn't be missed if you weren't there. You produce a report at the end of the day, but your sense is it gets filed away, lost, and no one ever even looks at it. What's missing there is the creativity, isn't it? The productivity, uh, the opportunity to contribute. And that can be a very dissatisfying experience. Or perhaps you've been in a workplace where actually your creativity is challenged appropriately and, and to its fullest, that it's somewhere where your contribution really matters and your gifts are used really well. And perhaps you're managed well. The care that you receive and, and, and are under is, is good. But the relationships with your co-workers, oh, what an awful bunch they are. Bitching, gossiping, belittling, bemoaning. Such an unpleasant environment to be in. You can't wait to get out of there. You feel tainted by those people and their relationship with each other. Well, what's missing there, isn't it, is the community, is the working in partnership and, and harmony. And again, that can be an unpleasant, a very unpleasant work experience. Or perhaps you've been in an environment where there is the opportunity to be productive and, and creative. There is the opportunity to have those good relationships with your peers and they are good and they're positive and strong, but your boss is just terrible. You're line managed or supervised in just an awful way, either because they're way too demanding and the challenge they present, the goals they ask for are unattainable, or at the other extreme, they seem not to care less, to be uninvolved and unengaged and not holding you at account at all, not bothered about what you're doing. Again, that can be a pretty unpleasant work experience, can't it? Where your boss is just out of sync. And in Genesis 3, we see each of those three breaks, if you like, talked about. That our creativity breaks to such an extent that in Genesis 3:17 we're told that for the first time thorns and thistles grow in and amongst the work that Adam and Eve are called to do. It becomes difficult, it becomes hard to be productive. The community is, is fractured. Genesis 3.16, we're, we're told for the first time a marriage starts to fall apart as one particular relationship reflecting all relationships. And we're told in Genesis 3.21-24 that great loving responsibility that we're meant to have and to show is no longer something we find easy to do. It's not our default anymore. And all of that is because of this thing the Bible calls the fall, which is the moment that humanity, all and every single one of us, consciously and deliberately by nature and by our choices says I want to live separate from God I want to disengage from God well having pushed God away how on earth can we reflect the one that we no longer want anything to do with we can't and so just as we've chosen to break our relationship with God so the ability to image God is broken and our experience of life and our experience of the workplace becomes broken well, let me pause a moment and just get our wits around us after that fairly elongated introduction. 
it's the theological or the biblical backdrop, if you like, to what Paul now says in Ephesians chapter 6. He's writing to a bunch of people, some are Christians and some aren't. Some are in employment and some aren't in, in remunerated pay. Some have senior positions of management, others have relatively lowly roles, as society would call them. And yet he writes to this, this mixed group of men and women and he says, what is our part? He answers the question, what is our part in seeking the restoration of this sweet spot? And in chapter 6 of Ephesians, he first talks to slaves in verses 5 to 8, and then to masters in verse 9. And isn't that interesting? First of all, it's worth noting that slaves and masters, in Paul's context, equals most closely our contemporary workplaces. Uh, slaves, slavery in the first century uh, surely was, definitely wasn't the most pleasant experience and of course for some was subjugated and forced but for the majority actually was a, a normal rhythm and pattern of life. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at that time, a huge, huge number and uh, they filled roles from the manual right the way through to the administrative, to leadership, to teaching roles, to government roles, to roles in business and commerce. In fact, we know, for example, in Acts 23, when Paul is brought before Felix, who is a local governor, regional governor, that Felix himself at least began his life, if not at that point, was still a slave. And so slaves and masters, as Paul writes about them, is not equivalent to slavery in our day, that horrific, abusive and forced experience. It's more parallel with our workplaces. And notice the very fact that Paul writes to slaves and to masters, to both of them, and in fact begins and is dominated by his words to slaves, shows that slaves and masters are equal in Paul's mind because they're equal in God's mind and therefore should be equal in the church. Whatever our social status, whatever our commercial status out there in the world is, it has no sway or say in terms of how God sees us and therefore in terms of the status we have within the church. In fact, we could picture a time potentially uh, when a slave within this first century context became a deacon or an elder or a pastor within a church that also was made up of masters. And notice, isn't it, that here Paul writing to slaves and masters, writing both to employees and employers, as such, sees both as equally responsible in creating a renewed workplace experience. We sometimes fall into the pattern, don't we, of saying, well, I'm not in any particular authoritative position, I'm not a boss, I'm not a manager, I'm not a supervisor, I'm not a decision maker, I cannot influence my workplace experience. Well, Paul would argue against you. Paul, in fact, spends most of his time, sentences five to eight, talking to those of us who are under authority, and then only one sentence, verse 9, talking to those who are in authority. Both have a role, a crucial role, in bringing this sweet spot of community, creativity and care back into being the experience in the workplace. Well, I want to look first, next week we'll look at masters. First, I want to look at slaves. First, I want to look at those of us who are, are under authority, which is probably many of us, if not all of us, in some relationship or circumstance in our life. I guess I look at my life and I've got a number of uh, scenarios where I'm the one in authority, line managing people or responsible for people, and a whole number of scenarios where I am the one under authority. And actually most of us, or if not all of us, are under authority in some way, shape or form in our paid employment, in a volunteer capacity or role within our home life, whatever it might be.
Well, I want to look at those under authority and see what Paul has to say to them. Let me read sentences 5 to 8. This is what it says. I'm going to exchange the words slaves and masters for the word employee and boss or employee and manager. Employees, obey your earthly managers with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are an employee or a manager. What is it that Paul has to say then to those of us who are under authority? Quite simply, though I'll unpack it in more detail, he says, when you're under authority, give it all you've got. In your workplace, in your paid employment, in whatever your arena of contribution is, give it all you've got. I say that because three times he uses the word heart here. Did you see it in sentence number five, with sincerity of heart? Sentence number six, he says, doing the will of God from your heart. Sentence seven, serve wholeheartedly. Now, in Paul's mind, the heart wasn't the centre of our emotions. It wasn't the place that our tears or our laughter, our joy or our sadness came from. The heart was the representative place of all that we were. It was the heart of the matter, if you like, the essence of who we were. Let me illustrate it like this, and you can just pause for a moment in your mental thinking and enjoy the illustration Imagine for a moment that you, you went out with some close friends, a, a gaggle of friends, uh, to celebrate some major event in one of their lives. It had been pre-booked months in advance, so you turn up at this super posh restaurant in which it would take a couple of months to book a table, especially on a Friday night. Well, you're there, you're having a great time, and just as the main course is being cleared away, you realise that a hush is descending on the restaurant. It's begun in the far corner, away from where you're sitting, but is spreading quickly across the tables and in essence has reached where you are on the other side of the restaurant. The whole place is hushed and silent and attentive. You follow the gaze of everyone's eye and you see in the table, the best table in the restaurant, they must have booked it months and months and months in advance to get there. There's a table of two, it's a young man and a young woman. And immediately you see, you know what is going on. The young man is down on one knee holding up a dark velvety box with something gleaming and catching the light nestled inside. The girl who's now flushed and red, uh, a smile on her lips, a, a tear of joy in her eyes, you know what her response is going to be. And in the hush you can just make out what the young man says. Part of it, with a quivering lip, he says, I give you my heart. Now, of course, not for one moment is he suggesting that at that moment he's going to leap up, grab the bread knife, slice open his chest in some horrific fashion, pull out that lump of pulsating flesh and present it before her next to her soup bowl. No, of course he's not. Nor is he saying, I give you my heart, and nestled in that velvet box is his organ donation card in which he's scribbled next to the tick boxes about what parts of his body he'd happily give to another if he were to die. Uh, my heart is reserved for, and the girl's name written there. Now what he means when he says, I give you my heart, is I give you everything, all that I am, I give it to you. That's what the word heart meant in Paul's day. Now, of course, wisdom says, and the Bible would affirm, and the ordering of the relationships here in Ephesians 5 and 6 tells us this as well, that wisdom says we should reserve some energy 
appropriate volumes of energy for things like our family and our marriages and our partners, things like our cultivating our own personal relationship with God and serving in his church. Of course we'd be wise, but that doesn't mean we slack in, the, in our workplace. He says, put your heart into it. Put your back into it. Give it all you've got. The first way that we do that is with a sincerity of heart. Verse 5. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. It was about working respectfully and doing that with all your heart. Notice the words there, respect and fear, or respect and revere your bosses. Give them the respect that is their due for the position of authority that they hold. Don't be a grumbler, a complainer, a belittler, a whinger, an underminer. Don't be the one who leaves those management meetings and immediately to your colleague starts to put down your, your mutual boss. Don't be that kind of belittler. With your whole heart, be respectful to those who have authority over you. That doesn't mean you ignore the fact that they sometimes make mistakes or you ignore the fact that they're sometimes bad at their job. But you approach them on that matter with respect. You do it rightly, even when they're in the wrong. You don't go behind their back. You don't complain and whinge about them. You have a sincerity of heart, a respectfulness for them. Secondly, in sentence six, he uses this idea of giving it our all, giving our heart, of an integrity of heart. Look what he says, obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Not only when their eye is on you, work reliably, consistently. Don't up your productivity when your boss, line manager, phase leader, section leader comes around the corner. Your productivity ups to a sensible level and then when they're out of sight, when they're not monitoring you anymore, it drops down to something that is slightly lackadaisical or lazy. He says, don't be that kind of hypocrite. Don't be the teacher's pet who's trying to curry favour with your boss. Don't be the self-promoter. Have you ever been in that situation? You've worked with a team of colleagues and then you're reporting back the mutual tasks that you've achieved, the reports you've put together. And one of you is talking to the boss and they are clearly trying to suggest in the language they use that they had done a greater portion of the work than the rest of the team. A self-promoter. We really don't like those sorts of people. They irritate us, rightly so. Paul says, don't be that kind of person, not only when their eyes on you, but consistently, all the time, have an integrity of heart. Your work ethic is the same, irrespective of how closely monitored you are at any given point. And then thirdly, uh, work respectively, work reliably. Thirdly, just work hard. A, whole heart, a wholeness of heart. Sentence seven, serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not people. Don't be a slacker. Don't be a clock watcher. Don't be a career butterfly who's constantly looking for the better job. Don't be lazy, lackadaisical or complacent. Work hard. Give it your all within the caveat of that reserved energy for other priorities in your life. I wonder how that makes you feel as you think about the role you have where you are under authority as we seek to return the sweet spot of community, creativity and care and play our part as those who are employees or those who are subordinates or those who are following others' lead or instruction. Do it with all your heart. Do it with a sincerity of heart, a respectfulness for those in charge of you. Do it with an integrity of heart, a consistency 
in your work ethic. Do it with a wholeness of heart, a hard work, a readiness to graft. And did you notice the why? Did you notice three times the little word as used here? Verse 5, as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Verse 7, as if you were serving the Lord. Paul's trying to say to these slaves, these people who are under authority, you and I, remember that you are not working for your manager. Look beyond your manager, look beyond your supervisor, look beyond the CFO, look beyond the trustees, look beyond the chair of the board, look to your real master who is Jesus. And of course, unlike even the best manager, supervisor, CFO, chair, board, trustee or shareholder, unlike any of those, Jesus is the good, great master, a wonder to work for, a thrill to work for. Realise actually you're working for him, whatever your role is whether it's in childcare, whether it's in driving a taxi, whether it's working in a signpost centre that's helping the vulnerable, whether it's behind a computer terminal, whether it's with bricks and mortar and wood and stone, whether it's artistic or graphic, whether it's commercial or business, whether it's in education, whether it's in the medical world, whatever job it is, look beyond your bosses, look beyond the authority, look to your real master, who is Jesus. You work for him. So work with all your heart. And therefore verse 8 is not a surprise because it finishes because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slaves or free, whether you're a manager, supervisor, in authority, under authority, whatever position you hold, your master is Jesus and he will reward you. He will be watching and enjoying how ye live out his creativity, his community, and his care within your sphere of contribution and experience. That is, in a nutshell, what we reflected on this morning in church. There was much more application available uh, this morning, but I'm confident that if you've listened and been in the sound of my voice to this, you can think of your own work environment, whatever it might be, paid or not paid, and you can wonder how you can be more wholehearted as someone who is under authority in that situation.